Welcome to Conservation Unfiltered, presented by Conserve the Wild, your destination for an unfiltered look at conservation. Now let's get wild. Welcome back to another episode of the Conservation Unfiltered podcast. This is episode number 21, Who's Helping the Monarch Butterfly? In today's episode, we have Marcus Gray from Audubon International on to discuss how his nonprofit found a creative way to increase butterfly habitat. Marcus is a wildlife biologist and the program manager for the Monarchs in the Rough program. This program brings butterfly habitat to golf courses as a way to help monarch butterflies in their migration flyway, as well as diversify the landscape without interfering with day-to-day operations. Listen along as Marcus brings this program to life and touts the benefits to an otherwise monoculture landscape. Today we have Marcus Gray, wildlife biologist for the Audubon International. He's the program director for the Monarchs in the Rough program. Marcus, how are you doing today? I'm doing fine. Thanks for having me, Jason. Um, absolutely. Uh, I want to say first, uh, I, you know, we've talked a little bit previously and I've been looking into the program and I think it's a wonderful thing. Um, but before we really start talking about Monarchs in the, in the Rough, can you tell us how you got interested in wildlife biology and how you started working for Audubon International? Sure. Well, it's a long story and we could probably talk about it for hours, but I was raised outdoors, hunting, fishing, hiking, and those sorts of activities. And so I, I come from a, a farming family, and we always spent a lot of time outside on my grandparents' farms just exploring. You know, basically um, had very few limitations other than don't leave the gates open. Um, and so, you know, I got to know the natural world in that way. And then I went to school for wildlife conservation up in Maine, and then I went to grad school in South Dakota for wildlife science. And so it's been a career that I've enjoyed and, and I've gotten to work with a lot of different people, a lot of different species and, you know, everything from elephants down to butterflies and, and, and several in between. Um, so right now um, I, I applied for this position with Audubon International to try to address this stark decline in monarchs. And, and there's a, a decline in a lot of different species that require this similar habitat, this grassland or young forest open land habitat, um, everything from songbirds to rough grouse and, and woodcock, uh, wild turkey brood rearing habitat, you know. So um, Audubon International was interested in, in bringing a new sector to monarch conservation, and that's um, golf course superintendents and, and others managing golf properties. So we came up um, with this model where we can work with superintendents to establish at least one new acre of habitat on out-of-play areas and golf courses to help support butterfly populations. And it was an initial partnership with the Environmental Defense Fund. But since then, it's grown to incorporate a couple grants from uh, organizations and entities like the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation, the U.S. Golf Association, Wadsworth Golf Charities, and, and other companies that are interested in, in improving sustainability on golf, on golf courses. In a in another life, or even in this life, if I could go back, I think I would have gone into some sort of wildlife biology or wildlife conservation as opposed to, to teaching. I love my job, but I find what yeah. people like you do to be extremely interesting, is, if nothing else, just because of the wide array of, of what you get to work with. I appreciate it. I, I like it too. That's why I'm sticking with it. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, we've talked to a couple wildlife biologists on this program, uh, and... We 
typically see a lot of, and what we hear, the sort of glamorous ones that I think a lot of people think about when they think of wildlife biology and people in that field deal with deer and, and elk and uh, large species. Correct. So hearing, getting to hear someone talk about monarch butterflies uh, is definitely something different and, and interesting to me. So why is it Im important for us to be thinking about monarch butterflies? Well, I mean, you bring up a good point that. Sorry about that. That's okay. <laughs> I just let that go. Yeah. But, um, no, it, really, it doesn't. It doesn't matter so much which taxa or you know which which animal you're interested in. These habitats support a wide variety of these ecological services that we're all relying upon. So you know whether you're looking at water quality or um, nesting habitat for quail, or um, even browsing opportunity. You know so grassland habitat for elk say um it's all the same habitat the the group of animals in the community that relies on that specific type of vegetation is declining um you know since world war ii we've had a lot of afforestation there's actually more trees now in the united states than, than our founding and a lot of people don't realize that but we've gotten really good at fire suppression and and planting you know tree planting initiatives and letting things go and now we've got this monoculture of 60 to 80 year old trees with closed canopy forests, a lot of deer browsing because we've been successful at recovering deer populations um, and decline in hunters and all these things are coming together and it's just decimating these native plant communities. You know, um, there's not any regeneration for the trees. There's not these wildflowers that, that are really, you know, open grown disturbance type species. Um, and so rather than increasing the, the, the occurrence of that habitat in the landscape, we've, we've replaced one unsuitable habitat, that closed canopy forest, with uh, suburban and urban development, you know, sprawl that is just interjecting this other unsuitable habitat type. So we may have a lot of o open space or non-tree, non-forested areas, but they're also not conducive to these populations. Um, and, you know, you have things like um, neotropical migratory songbirds that decline, depending on the, you know, a dozen species that have declined 60 to 80%. Bob White quail have declined 80%. You know, um, and so the mechanism there is that we don't have enough openings in the forest. We've, we're right at this mid-serial mid or middle-aged stand of trees where it's really not good for most things. Most most of the wildlife diversity benefits from young forest and old growth, and we're, we're caught here in the middle. So we need to take, you know, through management actions, we need to let some mature to be old growth, but then we also need to take maybe a third, um, you know, 10% to a third, depending on where you're at, and open that up and create this mosaic that will support the entire community and a whole host of species because we run the risk of everything aging and, and then dying off at the same time um, as far as the trees are concerned. And uh, we'll end up losing what we consider these um, unfragmented or, or forest obligate species as well. So it's just the roller coaster ride will just get very extreme. Yeah, and, and everything you're talking about I find is a very novel idea and a, a great concept. So mm -hmm. – how does it get off the ground? Like how, who reaches out to start these plantings on a new golf course? Sure. So the people can reach out to me um, or just go to the monarchs in the rough.org website and, and share that information with um, golf course managers in your area. And the, really the benefit is that these sites that we're doing are, are really demonstration projects. We might be doing, you know, one to 15 acres on, on the majority of courses. So it's not a huge amount of land, but they're, they're highly visible projects you know you do a project on a farm a larger project say if you have a field tour you might have 20 people see it 
um, on a golf course. And you think about the number of rounds that you go through, you're going to see hundreds and even thousands of people are going to see these, these plots um, every year. So they can take that message home and say, oh, look, I saw this at the golf course. Let's try this at a community space or at my local business or um, you know, other you know, public spaces that I, that I might be familiar with and have an influence on. So where are the different courses? I'm assuming they're going to be in different states and, and could be all over the country. So what states have courses that have participated in this program? Our oh, God. So we have – that's okay. Was, and you've got good editing spots now. But yeah. we, um, we have <laughs> – in in 2018, we actually had a nation uh, continent. Oh, excuse me, I start over there. In in 2018, we actually had a continent wide sign up, and we got courses from all over North America to participate. But our current funding right now is limited to the 28 states that are west of the Mississippi River, um, plus Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. And that's just you know the the funding entities. That's what they're interested in trying to trying to improved connectivity of the migration uh, flyway for, for monarchs. But, you know, these habitats support, depending on where you live, you know, a hundred other species of butterfly, not to mention birds and amphibians and everything else. But we have monarchs in the rough participating golf courses in 45 states, six Canadian provinces, uh, Puerto Rico, you know, protector of the United States, and um, and two Mexican states. So there's over 500. Right now we're, we're 513. Um, and I've got those on the map. If you go look at, at the participant page and on monarchsandrough.org, you can you can drill down and see in your area. You know, so you know in, in Philadelphia or Pittsburgh or California, you know where where are the golf courses involved in my area? You know, please tell them how thankful you are that they're doing this. Give them support. Show that you're interested in what they're doing and help spread the word because we have funding in those 28 states. Um, really about 150 acres worth of funding still we'd like to get allocated in the next year. I'll, well, I'll be sure to put a link to, to that map uh, in the episode description so that people can go ahead and take a look and see where the closest one is and, and maybe even get a little tour uh, yeah, of the course. Yeah, that'd be great. Appreciate it. And so obviously, you know, it's, as you just stated, it's continent wide. So every different area ha is going to be more conducive to different native grasses or flowers or sure. forbs. You know, what, what works in Pennsylvania might not work in California, probably won't work in California. No, exactly. So no, you're exactly right. You're exactly right. And we're trying to learn from what previous programs have done for other sectors, you know, for schools or, or residential gardens, things like that, where there have been other seed distribution programs. Um, and we're, we're trying to make sure that we learn from those programs and, and make sure that we're, um, providing the appropriate seed, appropriate native, uh, regionally appropriate seed in, in the areas where we're, where we're working. So we actually work with uh, multiple um, native plant nurseries um, in New Jersey. Uh, there's one, there's Pineless Nursery, and then we work with Minnesota Native Landscapes. And then there's, they're, they're plugged into um, a continent-wide grower network. So if we need a specific variety, you know, a specific type of milkweed or specific variety of native grasses, because a lot of states have restrictions on what you can plant in their state, you know, for restoration projects. It has to be within a certain geography. So we actually tap into that grower network and make sure we get the right seeds for the right place. You know, we're not going to take seed from one state and ship it all over the country. That, you know, that's that's not how this is, needs to operate. That'll cause more problems than, than, you know, we would like. I mean, there's the invasive species aspect of that, but also they'll just fail. You know, if you take, if you take 
seed from Florida and try playing in Alaska. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, and that's something that, um, uh, the honey nut Cheerios had that campaign a couple years ago where they were sending out seed mixes to people for, you know, what was good for honeybees. But then when you looked what mixes were, you know, what specific flowers were in that mix, some of them were not, you know, if you planted them in Ohio or in Pennsylvania, theoretically, you know, you could be fine for that because they're deemed an invasive species for that area. So that's, that's great that you guys are sort of making sure that that seed mix is more native to that area and, and making sure that it's the type of things that one would grow there, but then two doesn't then take over invasively the rest of that area. Yeah. And that's, that's, you know, a learning opportunity for a lot of people. And actually the, the organizations involved in that have, have since improved those practices and actually work with a lot of the similar, same, um, uh, native seed groups that we work with, like they're, the big one that they work with now is actually Applewood Seed out of Colorado. And they're also part of this network where they can get the right seed in the right place. And that's that's been an improvement for that initiative uh, for sure. Good. And so obviously, you know, everything costs money. Uh, so who pays for the seed? Is it solely through the grant funding? And then once you get the seed to these golf courses, who does the work to plant it and who pays for that work to be done? Yeah, so that's that's a lot of the novel aspect of this because a lot of seed distribution programs or even restoration programs generally, you know, a tree planting for riparian uh, protection or something like that. There's actually um, for a lot of programs there isn't any follow up. You know, you, once you get the you know, any maintenance, so once you get the the grant, you put in the practice, and then everybody says good job, see you later, and you come back in five to ten years, and you know, beavers have chewed everything or flooded out or or you know, a drought killed it or you know what have you deer browse the tops of all everything and it's, it's gone. So um, the good thing about Monarchs in the Rough and the, the, the new thing about it is that because we have this network, you know, we're really looking at this as a network of reserves that happen to be golf courses. And we have dedicated staff at each one of those because the golf course has their own budget and their own personnel to be able to not only install these things, but to do follow-up long-term maintenance because they have to see it every day. They're not going to let it fail. Um, and if there are issues, they're going to they're gonna fix them. Um, so that's been handy. So we provide the seed through Audubon International, um, working with this grower network that's continent-wide. And then the golf course superintendents can discuss with me or others um, on our staff about um, what things they need to know technically in terms of how do I handle the seed, what's my site prep, um, you know, preparation needed to, to get these plants to succeed. You know, what, what do I do if there's an invasive plant here already? How should I prepare the ground? Um, you know, what practices are better than this, that, and the other. And, um, and then, yeah, the beauty of it is that the, the golf courses are able to follow up. And that, that contribution alone of staff time and, 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 and resources to manage these things is worth all, upwards of $130,000, just that the golf courses are chipping in as an in-kind contribution. So that's, you know, very significant and, and greatly appreciated. The, the sort of keep on this money topic uh, because, you know, golf courses are just like any other business. They're trying to increase profit and sort of keep costs down as much as they can. Right. Uh, this isn't something that they're going to be planting every year. Uh, so how, like, you plant it once and if it's successful, like, how long can this planting keep going and keep supporting monarch butterflies and all the other species that will benefit from it? Yeah, I mean, depending, depending on where you're at, there's a, a continuum there, a range of expectations and, and realities, but, you know, you're looking at, by the time the plot gets 
established and things are really going well, you know, you've got the plants are producing butterflies and bees and hummingbirds and everything are showing up. You know, you're looking three or four years out from the initial breaking of ground because, you know, it really should take you upwards of a year to make sure the site is completely prepped because we have a lot of competition from non-native plants in a lot of different areas, not just golf courses, but just a lot of areas because we have a 400 year history of bringing things over here. So, um, you know, right about that time you get to the four or five year mark, it's ready for some sort of disturbance. Um, it's mature, but now other things are starting to occupy all the space. I mean, you want to have some bare ground in it um, that benefits native bees and, and everything else. But, you know, things like a pheasant or quail chick need to be able to walk through the on open ground. Um, but that disturbance is critical for continuing the germination and the, and the propagation through roots of, um, of the plants that we're interested in. So it's just like it, it's like forestry in a microcosm. OK, you can you do one treatment in forestry and then periodically you have to do that again or else you'll just have uh, the natural succession of, of, of what will come along um, rather than having this uh, early successional stage. So this is this is an ephemeral habitat, but it does take time to establish. But once it is established, you know, periodic maintenance is going to be mowing once a year, you know, setting your mower deck like six to eight inches and mowing it down once a year to keep the woody, woodies out. Um, there's a lot of courses, especially in the Midwest um, and increasingly in other parts of the country, but especially in the southeast and the Midwest, where they use prescribed fire. Um, they'll work with like a, a local um, fire company, a volunteer fire department um, that needs to do training for brush fire or something like that. And they'll, so they, they won't have any cost to the golf course, but the, they get the habitat managed and the local fire department gets some training that's necessary. You know, in, in a year we don't have a lot of rain, we have a lot more fires. So um, there, there's a lot of interesting models out there, and we're working on compiling those and, and getting those disseminated out to um, at least other golf course superintendents about, you know, what's working and what isn't and what might apply in your area. And then they take it, you know, in, uh, of their own volition and say, okay, well, this will work here. No, there's no way I can do that. You know, if you're an urban golf course, um, and, you know, say you're, you're outside of Raleigh, North Carolina or something, you probably shouldn't be – using prescribed fire, <laughs> you know, this, this, the smoke alone um, could, be, could cause issues with your neighbors. So it's, it's, you know, use common sense and, and see what's practical and what isn't. I remember from, my time working at a local country club uh, whenever I was in high school and college, the Red Hat Society would come in and do tours. And basically what they were looking at were the flower beds that we worked on and all the work that we did with that. Are courses seeing the same type of enjoyment for these uh, less pristine areas as well once they install these uh, riparian or these areas? Yeah, I mean, there was sort of a multi-pronged approach going here, right? Like you're saying, the formal gardens are one thing, and then you have this area on the periphery that could be in play, even. And then you've got these outlying areas. You know, golf courses occupy about 2.3 million acres in the United States, but they only use 30% of that area for the actual game. So, you know, you can have dozens, if not hundreds of acres on an individual property where um, these habitat projects can take place. So they're actually seeing um, birding groups, butterfly watchers, others interested in like, you know, frogs and toads or water quality, um, you know, just uh, any master naturalist groups, a whole slew of, of groups that are interested in ecology, water quality, soil health, all these other benefits. You, you know, that's that's really the cool thing about Monarch Rough is these projects. That's really the cool thing about Monarch 
rough is that these projects are a microcosm of these um, multiple factors that Audubon International actually looks at when they certify a golf course. You know, your wildlife habitat, environmental planning, water quality, water quantity, chemical use reduction and safety, right? We don't be spraying these um, habitats because we want broad leaves in there and we don't want to be spraying insecticides on them. Um, and then there's the outreach and education component. And this, this is a great way to get people out on the golf course to learn more about golf management so that there's better communication between the golf course and the surrounding community and they can learn from one another um, about what their challenges are, why they're doing things the way that they're doing, and then identify potential opportunities to work together on other initiatives. So it's it's been real good. Um, it's been very good all the way around just to just to get the conversation going where historically there, there has been, uh, you know, depending on where you're at, uh, an adversary relationship because there's just misunderstanding about what's going on and why. And golf admittedly had a poor reputation, say, 30 years ago, but they've made great strides even in the last 10 or 15 years to improve the sustainability. One, like you said, because of the cost associated with that, you know, that those, the, if you're putting down these inputs and you're, you're mowing frequently, those all have costs, personnel, um, maintenance, and, and, and actual, you know, fuel costs um, associated with them. And now they're saying, all right, well, let's have these out-of-play areas, let's manage for wildlife, provide these benefits that the larger community needs, because you'll find in a lot of areas, golf courses are the last remaining open space. You know, they're seen as the place where, okay, well, you have to improve water quality, you have to improve uh, air quality, you have to provide a place to recreate, you have to provide wildlife habitat, you know, and you're on the receiving end of sometimes feet of stormwater from the surrounding residential developments, um, you know, but the golf courses get, get pointed at. It's similar just like to, um, with farms and, and water quality, you know, everybody wants to point the finger at the farm for polluting the Chesapeake Bay, but really it's the millions of us living in the watershed that aren't maintaining our septic systems, you know, or have... There's 45 million acres of residential lawn in the United States, and residential lawn, landowners and, and homeowners get no training whatsoever on the chemicals that they are purchasing and, and applying. You know, if one pound is good, two must be better, um, five must be better. Um, so they're, they're having you know a significant impact on the landscape, and it's easier to blame someone else rather than look uh, introspectively and, and learn about what you're doing and how you could change. Yeah, as a homeowner, uh, my neighbors get frustrated with me for not keeping up with my yard like they do. Uh, right. I, I, like the to, right. I like to sort of be on my high horse and say, well, yeah, my lawn might not look as socially acceptable as yours, but I'm what I'm doing is better for the environment. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and yeah, everybody has a different priority. You, you know, whatever sector you're talking about, you can't manage for everything on the same acre, you know. So we need to make sure we have dedicated spaces for, for pollinator habitat and um, bird habitat and, and also the aesthetics and, and changing people's mindset and worldview about what is beautiful and what's acceptable. It, it's changing, you know, um, it, it's, it's improving in my, in my mind. Others may not think that, but, you know, it's, it's learning from each other and, and just having a conversation of why you're doing the things you're doing. Cause then people are like, you know, like I, I started planting, uh, we moved into this house and I started planting pollinator patches in the front yard, you know, um, but sort of in a semi-formal style, a little wilder than formal, I guess. Um, but anyway, they were contained, you know, they're in, in little blocks and, um, you know, people were looking at me like I was crazy. Like, why is he digging up the lawn? You know, well, then let's talk about it. Why am I digging up the lawn? You know? Um, and then they understood. And once they saw the flowers, you know, oh, he's not crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, they like hummingbirds. They like butterflies, but they mow every few days. You know, why? Why do you do these things? So it's just it's just taking the taking the time to step back and, and look at what's really going on. And that's an, a huge benefit to me of monarchs in the rough. Like I said, if you treat them like a network of reserves, 
say, rather than individual golf properties, like they're helping tie connectivity together at a continental scale, which is great. You know, they might be the linchpin or, you know, a key property in a watershed for various aspects of what organizations or community organizations might be interested in. Um, and now we're bringing them to the table and let's start that conversation because a lot of them have, a lot of golf courses have green uh, committees, you know, or we call an Audubon uh, committees where they actually um, do, you know, nest box projects, turtle surveys, um, bird banding, even, I mean, there's, there's just a whole slew of activities that go on that people just don't know about. And that's where um, it's, it's just really good to have um, the conversation started. So uh, we uh, just started, we just kicked off season two uh, with a, a couple earlier recordings. So uh, one of the thing we're, one thing we're trying to incorporate uh, in this season is a call to action. Uh, so is there anything that we missed or anything that you can send out to the listeners as sort of a call for action? What can they do to be involved or to help? Well, a big thing specifically, you know, tied directly to what I'm working on is, you know, let golf courses in your area know about these programs, even if they are outside the geographic area where we have grant funding, we may have additional funding in the future, or they can at least just take the idea and run with it. You know, if you can identify a source of funding for a golf course habitat project, go ahead and undertake it, you know, fantastic. I'm, I'm glad you, you're able to steal the idea because we're trying to have as big an impact on the ground as we can. Like you said, um, golf courses are looking to save money, but these environmental practices and environmental stewardship is actually becoming the expectation from the golfer's point of view. They want to see birds when they're out on the course. They want to see butterflies. They want to know that um, their course is an impacting water quality. You know, so it's, it's just good to have these activities um, going on because that helps the business model. You can attract a, a younger um, demographic of golfer that are concerned about these issues where maybe in previous generations weren't so much. So like I said, there's a paradigm shift happening in golf and golf courses management right now. I mean, we've got, you know, even some courses that are doing all organic management, and then you've got some that are, are okay, well, we're going to address our irrigation um, usage, you know, or where's our water coming from? You know, is it private wells? Is it municipal water? Is it ponds on top of the ground? Is it surface water, you know? So there, it's just people will get, um, you know, whatever your um, driving issue is, you know, there's there's a way that we can address it with Audubon International and, and these golf courses that we work with. I mean, we work with thousands of golf courses, but just in Monarchs and Rough, we've got over 500. And so that's starting to have a significant impact on the landscape. We're, we're looking at over a mile square of habitat, you know, 640 acres so far. And, and we're trying to add, like I said, another 150. So if we can get, um, there's more people to know about what we're doing, um, then we can meet all of our object objectives and, and um, get as much good habitat on the ground as we can. And if someone wants to learn more about Audubon International and or the Monarchs in the Rough program, where can they find that information? So we're active on social media. So just search for Audubon International or Monarchs in the Rough on there. You know, use hashtag Monarchs in the Rough. You can see updates from the field, um, things that are going on. I, I post articles about um, related topics, you know, managing golf courses for, for pollinators, butterflies. And then Audubon International as well. Um, it's just Audubon International. And you can learn all about our certification programs um, on there. Awesome. Well, Marcus, thank you for coming on and talking about this wonderful program. Uh, hopefully we can get You're some more golf courses involved as well.
Yeah, you know, I, I think it's a great opportunity for people to learn from one another. Uh, I'm learning a lot, especially from the superintendents about uh, their profession. And, and um, you know, I, I think there's a lot of opportunities here for homeowners to learn more about golf, excuse me, about how golf course management works and why they're doing the things they're doing and how um, they can improve pollinator habitat where they live. That'll do it for today's episode. I want to thank Marcus for coming on and discussing his job with Audubon International. I love the concept of the Monarchs in the Rough program, and I hope we find more ways to incorporate habitat diversity in our society. Join us next week to hear me discuss writing, politics, and conservation with Gabriella Hoffman of the District of Conservation podcast. Until then, leave a rating and review on iTunes and share this podcast with a friend. And as always, Stay wild. Mm-hmm.